Thank you, Stu, very much. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to have everyone here this morning. And for those of you online, welcome to you. Glad that you can join us uh, through those means as well. Let's uh, take our Bibles, if you would, please. We're going to turn to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Today, uh, we are beginning our journey through the life of David, and uh, we'll see how long it takes. We're not uh, not any hurry, though. Um, some of you may have noticed that uh, I forgot my watch this morning. I don't want to alarm you at that. There is still a clock on the back wall. Just All right, First uh, Samuel chapter 16. Uh, if you're able, I uh, invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. First Samuel 16, I'll read verses 1 through 13. First Samuel 16, 1 through 13. Yahweh said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If if Saul hears it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. I hope that most of you are familiar with uh, Israel's history during this time. They had come out of the period of the judges, and they've had Samuel now serving as a prophet for many years on their behalf, but they were discontent. They wanted to be more like the nations, and they rebelled against God being their king who ruled directly over them uh, through the agency of, of judges and prophets, and they demanded a king, and God gave them Uh, The king gave them a king after their own heart uh, that fit their imagination of what a king should be. A man taller than any in Israel, handsome and strong um, to all appearances, uh, very kingly in his manner and demeanor, apparently, um, even though he did go and hide among the baggage at one point. But nonetheless, um, they gave him Saul. Of course, Saul started off pretty well, if you'll recall, but it didn't really last very long. And over his 40-year reign, 
he descended further and further into himself and his fears and his rebellion and uh, his uh, desire to please the people more than pleasing the Lord. And Samuel, of course, was incredibly discouraged by this. I think it's clear as you read through the history of Saul, it's clear that Samuel has a great affection for him. Um, Loves the man, I believe. And yet... uh, Samuel is, being, is often called upon to go and rebuke him, which uh, I'm sure grieves him greatly. So in, the, in that context, uh, now uh, the command has come. Finally, Saul has just the straw that's broken the camel's back. He is not um, killed and destroyed the... Uh, Amalekites as he was commanded, but he's kept out the best for himself and the people and spared the king of the Amalekites, Agag, who uh, uh, he was commanded to destroy. And Samuel then shows up. Remember, Saul also rushed things. He was going to go in because he, uh, was, he was in a hurry and Samuel was late in coming, was supposed to offer a sacrifice. Saul took it upon himself to take the prophet's office and offer the sacrifice. And just as he is doing that, Samuel shows up. Isn't that always the case? You're in the middle of something you're not supposed to do, and ooh, somebody showed up. Um, and someone to whom you're accountable. And that's what, what happened. And Saul just starts sputtering out all of these excuses, blaming the people. Oh, you know, it's just happened. And after all, you know, I'm doing this for the best. You know, we want to give the best to God. It's a, it's some, he, he is demonstrating all uh, a tendency that all of us can have from time to time to try to put the, the best light on our sin. But Samuel wasn't having anything, about, uh, having anything to do with that. And the Lord certainly was not fooled. And at the Lord's instigation, Samuel um, told Saul exactly um, what the problem was. And that because of his sin and rebellion the kingdom was going to be removed from him. And he did so in no uncertain terms. But it's clear as we look at verse 1 of this uh, chapter, chapter 16, that Samuel did not make this declaration to Saul with any delight. In fact, it's clear from this verse that he was discouraged by it, that it grieved him deeply. And in fact, that is... The word uh, that, the, that uh, Yahweh uses here, how long will you grieve over Saul? Um, because, Yahweh says, I've made a choice about him. And uh, it's time to move on. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. In the middle of all of this, Samuel, in his grieving, is probably wondering, well, now what next? Samuel's old. He's old. Um, he's um, coming to the end of his ministry and wondering, oh, am I going to have to do this? How long am I going to have to do this? Am I, are we done with kings now? What's going to happen? And the Lord does not leave him in the dark very long. He reveals his plan. You know, uh, we have a need for a king. We have a need for a king that is true. We have a need for a king that is honorable. We have a need for a king who is dependable. If you look at even our history as a nation, where we don't have kings, we have presidents and we have senators and we have representatives and so on, an awful lot of money and effort and time and uh, uh, efforts both righteous and unrighteous go into exalting people who will lead us. We're constantly looking for someone to tell us what to do. Years ago, when Karen and I went to the Ukraine to adopt our son, one of the things that we found very, uh, to be very interesting, we asked a person there what it was like after the Soviets had left, and we were expecting an answer of something along the lines of, man, it's great, freedom's awesome, you know, kind of thing. Uh, the lady said, well, we are like 
animals in a zoo after the keepers have left. We don't know what to do. And you know, um, that tendency of our hearts to want people to, someone to tell us what to do, someone to guide us, because after all, um, and particularly in a political social realm, that's easier than thinking. Let somebody else do the hard work. Um, we just kind of just do whatever. Well, Israel was looking for someone to guide them, but they were looking in the wrong places and with the wrong criteria. God mercifully was merciful to them. He granted them their request. But now, as he has granted uh, the one that looked like it was going to be easy, the one that looked like he was a, a natural, a shoe-in, now he's going to choose someone else. And as we go through the life of David, we'll see how David, as a man after God's own heart, more or less lived up to that calling that he had. But along the way, we're also going to be looking at our own hearts and our own relationship to our true king, who is not David, but is rather the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about our heart context, and it's not so much different than Israel's. Unbelief, rebellion, demonstrated by erecting our own king within our own hearts. That, that would be us, right? And the only result is discouragement and emptiness because the king that you and I erect in our hearts cannot live up to the hype that we want them to have. As much as we desire to guide our own path and to, and to rule our own lives and think that that's going to really solve our problems, uh, it never can because we're frail. We can't deal with everything that there is. We're subject to not just weakness, but to sin and rebellion and everything that works towards the destruction of the soul for indeed the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So you and I need that true king. We need the king that Yahweh has chosen. And this, this passage tells us, uh, gives us a glimpse of how, of how Yahweh goes about choosing a king. So let's take a look at this um, as we see it lived out in the life of David and see what kind of applications we can make along the way for our own hearts as well. First of all, let's think about this choice um, as it relates to uh, criteria. Okay, God's choice fits his plan. Look at verse 1. Paul, or, uh, Saul has has been rejected. God says, I have rejected Saul from being king over Israel. So quit grieving over him. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Notice a couple of things here that are revealed just in this one verse. God has a plan here. It's very clear that he has a plan here. And, and the choice that he makes, he has made without reference to the plans of Israel, without reference to their desires. Nobody's going to go to uh, the, the son, the youngest son of a shepherd in the little uh, nothing town of Bethlehem to look for a king. And yet that's where God goes. But this plan is not just an arbitrary one. Notice the use, of course, and I've, I had someone ask me today, why do we uh, say Yahweh all the time? Well, every time you see the, na the name, see the word Lord in all caps, uh, is an indication that that is the covenant name of God in the Hebrew. Um, and so, you know, when Yahweh revealed himself to his people, Sorry, a little sidebar here. When God revealed himself to his people in Egypt, you remember what he said? When Moses said, how will I, you know, what are my credentials, in other words? Who, who's sending me? And, and Yahweh says to him, by my name Yahweh I will be known to them. 
It's a good thing for us to be reminded of God's covenant personal name with his people. So that's why we use it. Every time we see Lord in all caps, just use the covenant name. It's a blessed name. I hope you love it because it speaks so much of his faithfulness. And that's indeed what the word means, the name means. So this plan is not just an arbitrary one. This plan is in the context of our God as a covenant-making and keeping God. This is his covenant name. This is the name that he uses when he reveals to himself to his people in promise and in faithfulness and in strength. This is not something that uh, is just an arbitrary thing. This plan is a matter of promise, and it is a decisive plan. Notice just in this one verse, the strong verbs that are here. I have rejected. I will send. I have provided. The Lord's not wondering, oh, my Saul just hasn't worked out. I'm not sure what to do here. Yahweh knows exactly what to do. And he has set things in motion. And in fact, um, let's take a look at the word rejected for one, for one thing. This is a hard word. This is a, this is a, there's no way to soft pedal this. This word means to, to refuse or to dismiss. He has set Saul aside, dismissed him. Saul is going to be fighting against this dismissal. But as far as Yahweh is concerned, it's done. He has been set aside and is no longer, uh, he's, a, he's a really, if you want to put it this way, he's a lame duck. And he has a hard time accepting it. Now Samuel was not wrong to grieve over Saul's fall from grace. And we have other passages in scripture, you know, how are the mighty fallen and some other things like that that um, of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem that killed the prophets and rebelled against him and, and were caught in unbelief. But the Lord's words to Samuel, in other words, are not meant as a rebuke to him for feeling sorry about Saul. Basically, his command is, you just need to get over it, Samuel. Because I've said some things here. I've got a plan and you need to trust me more than being concerned about Saul. Uh, He needed to remember the message that he had just delivered not long before in in this book of 1 Samuel. Wherein he said, now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought out a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him. This was three chapters before this. Chapter 13, David, um, to our knowledge from this text, it wasn't that David was sitting out there going, well, God's given me a command, so I'm just waiting for it to happen. Um, David apparently doesn't know anything about what's going on. But as far as, in other words, this is God's plan. He's commanded it to happen. I've commanded, Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. So it's decisive. A covenant plan, according to God's very nature and faithfulness, it is decisive, and it is a plan that is definitely foreordained. It's not an arbitrary or last-minute decision. As far back as Genesis 49, do you remember what happens in Genesis 49? Jacob, Israel, is dying, and he pronounces blessings upon his sons. Some of them are blessings, and others you read and go, well, that's, I know you use the term blessing there, but uh, it's, a, it's a, a comment about the future of his sons. When he comes to Judah, he makes the, these statements. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. And even we know that the Lord had his plan from before the foundation of the world to redeem his people through his son. So here with David, though, 
we have the revealing of the king out of the line of Judah. And of course, as it would come through um, uh, history, David, born in Bethlehem to Jesse, who is a descendant of David. So, um, let's think about this foreordained plan for our king. Samuel needed to recognize that God had a plan, that he had been putting it into place all along, and therefore to rejoice in it and be content with it. This plan would continue on. It would be extended on to the revelation of King Jesus through the uh, offspring of David, Boaz, marrying Ruth, and their descendants. And how, uh, as you go through the genealogies, you see both on Joseph's side and Mary's side, a connection to David and Bethlehem. Of course, there's uh, Bethlehem prophecies and so on that mark out Bethlehem as a, as a unique place, a place where the Lord uh, does some interesting things uh, through history. Then you work on through the, the prophets like Isaiah and others that speak of the Messiah to come. And you can see that when the Lord chooses a king, he doesn't leave anything to chance. He doesn't uh, wait for uh, circumstances to figure out how he's going to go about doing something. He's made a plan. It's a decisive plan. He will be faithful to that plan and accomplish it. And he, again, is not asking our permission or our input or our insights or our wisdom or anything else. When you, th- We're going to speak more of this going on, so I'm, try- I'm trying to save some of my thunder for a little bit later as we go through the passage. But basically, um, David was not the expected, as far as Israel is concerned, he would not be anyone that would be expected. When you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, he wasn't what the world thought either. He didn't live up to the Jewish leader's expectation or even just the Jewish people's expectation of what they'd been taught to believe the Messiah would be. Uh, Jesus just didn't fit that picture. And they weren't ready to receive him. They, they, they often, if you notice during the Gospels and you read through how many times that they tried to force Jesus to be king because they were trying to they had a certain mind, a king according to what they wanted, not according to what God wanted. Oh, he'll feed us, he'll heal us. Oh, that's great. Go ahead, rule us. Um, this, this, this eating lots is good stuff. Um, better than working. But they didn't really want to obey him. God's choice fits his plan as opposed to ours. That's the point I want you to get a hold of at this point from verse 1. Secondly, as we look at verses 2 through 5, and this whole thing about coming together with the sacrifice and all of that, what's all that about? It, this, is, this is a curious section because Samuel is, uh, is uh, wondering how this is going to work out so that he's still alive when it's all over and done with. Because generally, in that period of time and in that part of the world, if you came in saying, hey, there's another king, uh, as a po- and instead of the one who's sitting on the throne, that was dangerous stuff. Okay? So the Lord does this. comes a different way. You know, uh, again, I'll go back to the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time. What did they want in the Messiah? They wanted the Messiah to come in on the white horse, leading armies, wipe out Rome, give them freedom, all through force and and pomp and all of this stuff. What does God say? He doesn't say, I'm sending, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you go to David, and I'm gonna have you anoint him, and he's gonna gather an army, and we're gonna wipe out Saul. He says, I want you to take a heifer and go worship. That's how I'm going to reveal my king to you. I'm pretty excited about this point. I want you to think about this as we go through. God's choice not only fits his plan, his choice is revealed 
through and in the context of worship. Let me say that again. God's chosen king is revealed in the context of worship. And notice various aspects uh, of this here. Beginning at verse 2, Samuel says, if Saul hears about this, he is going to kill me. And then you look at verses 4 and 5, and the elders are coming out, and they're, going, and they're trembling. Oh, my goodness. Why are you here? Um, I want you to think about worship. True worship before the Lord. At times when you've been, think back in times of your life when you've been discouraged. It may even been this morning. And you come into the presence of God among his people and we, our hearts may be heavy, but as we start to sing praises and we hear his word and we minister to one another and we come alongside in our desire to exalt our king, it's hard to remain discouraged. Genuine worship before the Lord as we exalt him for who he is and acknowledge him. If we're truly standing in the presence of the one who is almighty, all-knowing, all-present, what need do we have to be discouraged? If we're really seeing that, worship that reveals the king is a worship that displaces fear. Think about this. Here's Samuel. He's just come from telling Saul. Not just that he's going to be replaced, but he has told him, Saul, the Lord is choosing someone who is better than you to be king in your place. Ouch. He's told Saul that to his face. And at this this debacle of a sacrifice that Saul started and the celebration and everything, um, the king of the Amalekites comes up and says, hey, basically, are we good? And uh, what does Samuel do? He takes a sword. This old guy takes a sword and says, just as your sword has made uh, people, uh, uh, women childless, so your mother will be childless, childless among women. And he, it says he hacked Agag to pieces with the sword. I was sitting there this morning, so I was just kind of mulling over this again. It's not something I, you really want to dwell on. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to put myself in Samuel's shoes and, or sandals. And thinking, whoa, hacking him to pieces. What does that mean? What did he do? It was a, a bloody, awful scene. And Samuel does it. And now he's standing. This is a guy who's told off Saul and who has and told him he's, you know, there's somebody better than him and has hacked a, king, a, a pagan king to bits and he says, if Saul hears this, he's going to kill me. He's afraid. Why is Samuel afraid? Why is Samuel afraid? And I don't know that I know the whole entire answer here. Certainly he's aware of Saul's power and position, that Saul has the ability to do it if he desires to do it. He is seeing that, Paul, that's, that Saul is out of control. Saul, that the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul. I'm sure it believes him capable of anything. This is a, some of the commentators make, make this point as well. Here's a glimpse of Samuel as he is when he's not in office. It made me think a little bit of the Apostle Paul where he writes... You know, well, his letters are really weighty, but in, in person, he's kind of despicable. Right? He's just not all that impressive. And it's not an uncommon thing for God's servants through the centuries who 
are. They have these times of boldness. I think Elijah was another one, right? And then he runs, you know, um, and goes and hides. Uh, Jonah goes into Nineveh, preaches, 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 then goes and sulks, you know. Uh, faithful leaders are human too, and, and sometimes they forget who they're serving. Perhaps Samuel had one of those moments here. In any case, it does seem to be that uh, when he's standing there in his office, he's got a tone, he's got a, he's got, um, a demeanor that commands authority. And yet, we've seen from his grieving over Saul that he's also a person of compassion and tenderness. Interesting. But in any, in any case, he is, uh, he's, he's now suddenly afraid. He's now afraid. And Yahweh knows the remedy to that fear. And that is to worship the Almighty One. Because when we stand in his presence, uh, our cares uh, suddenly are shown to be for what they are, infinitesimal uh, in the mind and, and in comparison to the strength of the Almighty to deal with them. And so when you're afraid, um, worship. Turn your eyes to what the Lord has said and who the Lord is, and focus on him, and the fear will be dealt with. Samuel's going to go on and do the things that God has called him to do, even after he said, if I do this, God's going, uh, Saul's going to kill me. He proceeds to do what he's supposed to do in his office as he's strengthened in his time of sacrifice and worship. Secondly, the Lord reveals his, cho uh, his choice in, in worship, that is marked with gratitude. Now, I get this from the exchange between Samuel and the elders. The elders are coming, and they're shaking in their boots. Um, they uh, they are, are wondering what they had done wrong. Now, put this into context. The tabernacle... Uh, uh, didn't have the Ark of the Testimony anymore. It, was, it, was, it had been taken out. And so rather than it be the place where people would go, Samuel did a, kind of an itinerant ministry around the country and would go to places and would offer sacrifice and people would come and so on. So that's the, they're not trembling because he's doing that. But this, who knows? Uh, one commentator suggested that perhaps these elders were supporters of Saul and they know that Samuel had just said that Saul was done and plus no doubt they heard about Samuel and Agog and uh, the sword incident. A lot of times, apparently, when Samuel would come, it would be to deal with towns that maybe had... Um, delved into some form of wickedness, idolatry, or some other thing, and he would come, and they would offer burnt offerings and so on. But they are afraid. They are coming. Again, they're afraid of him. And they are, are you coming? Are you coming peaceably? And he says, yes, peaceably. So I'm thinking that it's likely that the offering that he comes to bring with his heifer is the peace offering, an offering of gratitude, an offering of praise uh, for the blessings of the Lord. Uh, certainly appropriate if he's about to reveal the king. Samuel knew that's what he was there to do. But uh, the others, uh, probably in the dark, at least to some degree, about what Samuel was there to do. So peace offering would be a meal that is shared. Portions of it would, uh, were consumed in the fire for Yahweh and the rest they enjoyed together as a feast. Now, um, the the uh, the worship here, therefore, is that of gratitude. Now, I want you to think about this as you come into the presence of God to worship. And what I'm going to say to you next may seem a little strange. It's hard to think of worship that is not grateful. 
generally we think of gratitude and praise that way or thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and praise being almost synonymous. But they are not. They are not. You can tell someone how great they are without necessarily being thankful for them. And we can do that with God too, almost out of resentment or out of resignation. Yes, he's great. Yes, he's great. But not really live with an attitude and a mindset of gratitude and devotion and love for him. It's just, it's a rather cold and impersonal kind of thing. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, the nations will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will have to acknowledge, as the book of Philippians says, that he is king. But that doesn't mean they're redeemed. And it doesn't mean they're submitting to him. They just acknowledge the truth that he's king, whether they like it or not. In this context of worship, where the king is revealed, this worship the Lord sets out through Samuel to be that of fellowship and gratitude and compassion and love for God, thankfulness to God. Not just, yeah, we know, we, we know you're great, now you're going to pound us. Which is kind of what the elders were thinking. And Samuel said, no, no, this is peaceable. This is, this is worship with gratitude. And notice that this worship is not just a, a personal thing. It's not just Samuel going off in a corner and, and having his own little sacrifice and meal and pray t- prayer time and so on to thank the Lord for what he's going to do and then the Lord reveals uh, his king. No, this worship is corporate. It's among the body. Now, he only brought one heifer, so I can presume that this was not a, a feast for the entire, uh, for the entire town. He calls the elders of the town together and then also calls Jesse. And who knows, there may have been others as well, but uh, it's what we know from the text is the elders of the town and Jesse and his family. So uh, this worship was corporate uh, uh, with the leadership, with special guests that were invited The anointing of the king, in other words, was to be done in the presence of reputable witnesses. Again, how much anyone knew about what was going on is not clear. Uh, The elders, um, certainly when they first got started, uh, they had no inkling that this was coming. What Jesse knew, we're not told. Um, Samuel also, as we see later on, Samuel taught prophets as an instructor. Prophet had a school, a prophet school, and so they may have thought that somebody was going to be uh, particularly chosen to go serve and to learn and and maybe be his successor or something else like that. Uh, but I rather expect that the whole idea of anointing a new king was not on anybody's radar. But you know, this idea of having this, the, the leadership there as the witnesses um, kind of points up uh, something that uh, we hear in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus say, when uh, he basically uh, rebukes uh, the leadership at that time for their rebellion and unbelief and basically saying, you know, these things weren't done in a corner. There were witnesses to the revelation of King David and there were witnesses to the revelation of King Jesus. Witnesses of a, a wide variety of witnesses, were there not. But uh, Jesse was an interesting man, he may have been a prominent man in the town, may have been. Um, he had a few servants, but basically he was a shepherd, just like so many others. So we don't know how, uh, how uh, wealthy he was or anything like that. Uh, but nonetheless, the honor of this invitation to be singled out would have been a remarkable thing to join 
with the elders. And boy, you can just imagine the gossip mill in Bethlehem during that time. I've been wondering what in the world was all this about. But I was thinking about the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, also uh, born in obscurity and relative poverty and exalted from among his brethren to be revealed um, at the time of his uh, baptism as the anointed one whom God had chosen. All of these witnesses that pointed ahead to the chosen king. And they came about during times of worship. Think about Jesus. Of course, you've got the shepherds worshiping. You've got the, the magi worshiping. Mary and Joseph worshiping. And you think about all those things and wonder, yeah, as I'm worshiping and the Lord is revealing his king to me in his word, by his spirit, uh, where is that most strongly seen? It's in the presence of the body. It's not to say that we can't come to God's word on our own and be taught, certainly in our quiet times and times of devotion. Those are Precious times, and we can learn much and so on. But even in that, um, that personal private time is brought to its fruition. The fullness of its understanding as we come in that spirit and mind, having our hearts stirred up by our personal study to come into the presence of God's people who are also experiencing those things, to share those things with each other, to encourage each other with those things, and to see the evidence of the Spirit of God working in the lives of others just as He is in ours. So that we, again, can see that these things are attested to by many witnesses. So God's, God's King is revealed in that kind of worship. And uh, notice this uh, other aspect in verse uh, 3. Uh, verse 3, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Uh, this, <clears throat> I'm calling this worship with anticipation. When you come into God's house to worship, are you just coming in with the mindset that, all right, I've got some things to do now, and when that's done, then uh, we'll go off and, uh, you know, go have lunch. Go visit here. Go do this, that, or the other thing. What are you anticipating when you come to worship? When you look at this situation here, oh, there's different kinds of anticipation all over in this story. First of all, Samuel is anticipating the revealing of the king. So he's got a little bit more going on as far as understanding what's happening. The elders are anticipating, after they get over their fear, God's blessing upon their town. Jesse may, again, may or may not know what is going on, but he knows at least that something special is in store for his family, so he's anticipating that. Jesse's sons are anticipating a special meal. I mean, after all, they're boys, right? So they're looking forward to a good meal. But then as time goes on, you kind of wonder, what was going on through their, in their minds as they're trying to take in what they're seeing and what Samuel's doing. And they've got to be mystified and wondering what, what all of this means. And David, of course, had no way of anticipating anything. He was just called out of the field to go home. So you can imagine that whole walk there. He's going, well, I wonder what this is about. Probably was told there's a meal. Probably told this, the prophet was there. All the elders were there. We've been invited and wondering uh, what's, what's going to happen. What an evening this was for everyone concerned as the Lord's plans are revealed. You know, when you and I come in here uh, on the Lord's Day or any other time that we gather to worship, we, we often come with Various levels of anticipation. We're anticipating that 
God is going to reveal himself in his word? Are we anticipating good fellowship with one another? Are we anticipating a joyful time of singing? Are we anticipating um, being convicted of our sins? Are we anticipating um, uh, the dispelling of our fear and our concerns as we worship with the Lord? I rather expect that all of us come with different kinds of anticipation uh, from week to week and time to time. Did you ever think about coming into worship with the anticipation that you're going to meet your king and meet him afresh? I mean, consciously. I mean, I, I think if I went around and asked you individually about this, you would go, well, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, we're going to meet with God and so on. But no, not just, I, yes, but more than, is, is he just the God who is out there, who's all-powerful, or is he our personal God, our personal king, who loves us and who gave himself for us? And are we anticipating meeting with him? Being blessed by him, being guided by him, being ruled by him. Is that the nature of our anticipation? I rather think that the elders in Bethlehem, and even up to a point, even David himself, had to learn what their anticipation was supposed to be I rather expect that except for Samuel everybody was surprised at what happened what happens when the Lord does reveal himself to us do we insist nope this is just about a meal (laughs) this is just about going through the motions this is just about getting God's blessing this is just about Something special. Or do we adjust our expectations and anticipation when we come face to face with our king? I really, it doesn't tell us. So much of the life of David that is intriguing because of what it doesn't tell us about David and about what happens in between the incidents. Um, we're told what happened, um, but then... What was the reaction of the brothers? We can surmise from subsequent events. What was Jesse's reaction? How did Jesse treat his son going forward? How how did the elders treat uh, David going forward? Did they understand what that was going on? What was going on there? We're not told. But notice that the Lord chooses his time of worship among the body to reveal his king. If you want to see his king... You need to be here among his, among his people. And you need to be anticipating um, welcoming the king when you do so. Now the final aspect of worship here is that this worship is holy. This is holy. And this is a good point upon which to close this morning. <clears throat> Notice that Samuel... Uh, tells the elders to consecrate themselves, and then he consecrated Jesse. Now, the idea of consecrate here is the idea of setting, it, setting them apart, of being holy. Of not just coming into God's presence, slapdash, and uh, more consumed with your own self and your own affairs than you are with his. You want to meet the king? Then prepare for it. The leaders were to put away sin and everyday affairs to attend this worship. Samuel, as he consecrated Jesse and his family, apparently would have prayed for them, leading them in acts of repentance and devotion in order to attend. What a picture of entering into worship that that presents for us. Everybody take a look at your bulletin real quick. Every once in a while I bring this up as a good review for us. And of course we we have often new folks too that haven't heard this explanation before. But as you look through the order of service, does anything jump out at you? Like in bold print? Psalm 24. Psalm 24 verses. Psalm 24, and I won't take time this morning because uh, um, we're, we're coming to the end here. 
But take a look at Psalm 24 uh, today. Great, uh, great day to read through Psalm 24 as a marvelous way, uh, a marvelous picture of how we come into the presence of God. And here we've taken from Psalm 24 the key sections, divisions that speak to entering into God's presence. Starts off with praise. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. And then uh, who can ascend into the hill of, of uh, Yahweh? It's those with clean hands and a pure heart. Speaks to confession and repentance. And so that's that part of our worship there. And then once, uh, once that being done, he shall receive blessing. And there's where we have the preaching of the word and those kinds of things, as well as the Lord's Supper as he ministers to us. And then it closes up again with praise at the end for what God has done. A marvelous picture of how we're to come into God's presence. We don't just come uh, in an unholy way. And I don't necessarily mean in a grossly sinful, outwardly blatant, wickedly uh, wicked way. I mean, this day is to be set aside unto the Lord. Our normal affairs, our normal uh, uh, modus operandi need to be set aside as we devote ourselves unto our God. That's why we have times of prayer and confession and all of those kinds of things as we enter into the Lord's presence. Only when we are thinking God's thoughts can we receive his king. If we're consumed with our own thoughts, we won't see him if he's standing right there in front of us. So the Lord reveals his choice a choice that fits his plan. And he reveals him in the context of worship. I pray that as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ today, that we will see him for who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. We will humble ourselves before him and rejoice in the peace that he brings to us by his death and resurrection. Now, God willing, next week we'll continue on in this chapter and note a few other things about this choice that are also very interesting and also have much application for the Lord Jesus. But for now, let us close our time of worship by humbling ourselves before our King and seeking his blessing as we continue on. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us <clears throat> without a King. Lord, in our foolishness, in our rebellion, we would erect our own king, but your king is better. Your king is perfect. Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I thank you that you in your word have revealed him, that your spirit has uh, ministered in our hearts and given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, let us truly see our king and humble ourselves before him. And as we do so, Father, then let us go and serve you with all our might so that we, like David, would be those who behave and think as those who are after your own heart. In Christ's name we pray.